Today's call to worship is Psalms 85, 8 through 13. In your pew Bible, it's on page 547. I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the ways for his steps. This morning's New Testament reading is found in Revelation 14, verses 14 through 16. You are welcome to join me in your pew Bibles on page 1146 and 7. If you don't want to negotiate the treacherous page turn, you can just listen to me. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Mark 4. Jesus also said, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or get up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Well, it is fun to sing with my brothers and my son. That is a good thing. As you could probably tell from the texts, each of them had something to do with harvest, something to do with grain, something to do with this season of reaping and thanksgiving. I have several things I want to share with you along those lines as we think about um, what we've heard in the text and what we might do to reclaim some of the concepts that are so missing from our own uh, vocabularies and sensibilities and ways of being in the world. Most of us who live in the city are not farmers. Now, there are increasingly urban farm movements in which people are using their backyards to grow produce, putting hydroponics in the garage and leaving the car on the curb, learning about uh, husbanding trees and chickens in areas that permit them. In fact, if you take time, we have our own organic garden and chicken coop in the very back of this property that Little Patch of Earth Preschool has been uh, working with back there. It's quite lovely. But we're distanced from the earth, and we're very distanced from the cycles of earth. Most of us live in areas where there's either enough fog or smog or both to obscure the heavens a good part of the time, and we're not aware of the movement of the stars. I plead ignorance of the first order. I can tell you what the Big Dipper is, the Little Dipper is, Orion. We have a few astronomers in our midst, and I congratulate them. But I could no more tell you about the movement of the heavens than I could about any other esoteric field. It isn't how life is ordered for me 
and it probably isn't how life is ordered for most of you. I can see the seasons of the moon. I can see it waxing and waning, and so can you, and every now and then when I'm driving home in November, I'll get an incredible view of a full moon rising over the mountains of Glendale as I come in from Santa Clarita in the evening. Just gorgeous. It looks larger than life. And uh, you can't help but almost get in a wreck watching the thing as you try to keep on the road. It's absolutely stunning. So I'm aware of those pieces, and I'm aware of the heat of day and the sort of odd things that happen now with weather. But there was a time when we have sort of had seasons. Um, you know, summer was 82, winter was 72, and everybody in the world wanted to live in L.A. Um, I'm kind of teasing. Um, we've never had four seasons really in California, but we, we've, we've sort of had seasons. Two weeks of fall, two weeks of spring, uh, seven months of summer, eight months of summer, and a couple months of winter, right? That's, that's kind of been our, our way. We have as a people historically long ago thought in terms of seasons, and we don't anymore. We go from an air-conditioned car to an air-conditioned house to an air-conditioned office when we're living in heat. And when we're living in cold, um, it's 68 degrees out, and the girls have their Australian Uggs on and their fur jackets. <laughs> we cope very well here in Southern California. Now, why am I talking about the weather and the moon and cycles and this sort of thing? I'm talking about it because we don't generally live our lives by any of these things. They're peripheral to us. They're aesthetic as, at best. When you think about fall, you don't think about going out to a field and putting down your sickle and gathering up stalks of grain and you don't think about bundling those, and you don't think about who's going to thresh them, and who's going to gather up the grain, and then who's going to grind it, and how bread will be made. You go to the bakery and buy the finest thing that you, you want to eat. Any time of year. Or rather, I do. Some of you don't look like you ever go to the bakery. Congratulations. <laughs> I think I'll button my jacket. Happy Thanksgiving! Anybody put on four pounds this week? Okay, all right, very good. It'll come off next week, don't worry. So we have this habit in life now of, of putting up things irregardless of season, regardless of season. I hate that word, irregardless, and I fell right into it. So we have the strawberry patch, which is seasonal, or if you're on the coast, maybe they can grow more year-round, but we have strawberry preserves or frozen strawberries, so we don't really think about when they grow or where they come from. We don't think about what kind of fertilizer they're going to need. When we need a strawberry, we go buy one. Now, my point here is that we are, I want you to hear this, very alienated from the cycles of life as they have existed on this planet for millennia. We aren't reliant on them, and we are alienated from them, and we don't think about them, and we don't live our lives by them. Sunset and sunrise are irrelevant, except when we have to get up an hour earlier because of daylight savings time. They're irrelevant because we have electricity and light and heat 
And we don't have to go by the cycles, even of sunrise or sunset, the most fundamental marker of time in existence. This alienation that we have from all of this means that when we go to our Bibles and we're reading stories or reading themes that come from a society that very much paid attention to all of these things, we already have a huge gap between what we understand about the way the world works and what the biblical authors understood about the way the world works. For them, there was much more dependence upon weather For them, there was much more dependence upon cycles and seasons. For them, they didn't have a nuclear watch in Switzerland that they could, or, yeah, I think it's Belgium or Switzerland, which is it? Anyway, they didn't have a way of keeping time that was accurate to within a millionth of a second. They relied on sundials and seasons, and they lived their lives by the rising and setting of the sun. Crops were planted in their season. We don't have any real conceptualization of that living in the city in Southern California. Crops were planted in their season and harvested in their season. Shabbos festivals, Sabbath festivals were organized in some cases around these harvest times. Life depended on what would be brought in at harvest. Life depended on the livestock producing their own kind in the spring. Life depended on rhythms and cycles that we no longer think about. I was sharing the Thanksgiving evening, uh, Eve evening with a family, a young man who's engaged to be married to the daughter of that family, and his father is actually a beef farmer in the greater Philadelphia area. And they actually now use technology to inseminate the the bulls, the, the, the cows artificially, and they can get the best stock this way so that maybe instead of one or two calves being produced or a dozen, they can do 100 or 200 from the same bull. And the best genetic stock can go forward as they, or the traits that they want to enhance can go forward through this process. We no longer think of pasture land and things happening naturally and calving taking place in the spring and them leaping about in the meadows. We raise things in barns and pens and on mountains of manure. Be sure to roll your windows up on the five when you drive north this year. Okay? Why do I mention this again? I mention this because when we get to the Bible and the way that people valued things and thought, we're so distant from these experiences that I fear we might have metaphors that are coming to us for spiritual purposes that we can no longer relate to or understand. And so today I just thought in, the, in light of Thanksgiving and the fact that that is a harvest celebration and that that is predicated on the idea of planting and reaping, that maybe we ought to think about those concepts and see if we can redeem them for ourselves because they have spiritual implications for each of us. Do you believe that or do you think uh, it's time to go home and eat lunch? I, I believe that with all my heart. So I want you to turn to the gospel text first. I want you to turn to the gospel text first. 
so that we can start with just a basic look at what Mark is talking about. Now, there are a number of parables here, but we're looking at the parable of the growing seed. It's just been read for you, but Jesus is now likening the kingdom of God to the seed. So if we don't know anything about the seed, it's going to be difficult for us to know something about the kingdom of God here. But Jesus speaks and ties it to a mystery. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up. In other words, irrespective of human activity, irrespective of individual effort, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he doesn't know how. There's mystery. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. This is called, by Christian Schwartz, the biotic principle. And the biotic principle means that implanted within things inside creation is the mechanism for them to reproduce themselves automatically. So though we don't see the process or understand the mystery, when a grain, a piece of grain dies and hardens and falls into the ground and makes its way into the soil and water drives it further down and softens it and lets it sit among the nutrients, as water comes into it, as the warmth of the sun penetrates the soil and brings energy to everything, the seed somehow, mystery, germinates. Roots get put down, stalks go up, and eventually one seed could yield 20 seeds, 30, 40, 60, 80 seeds. So what you have from one is an abundance of others. This is the mystery that Jesus is talking to his disciples about. He says the kingdom of God is like this. Whatever our human efforts may be, whether we're waking up or going to sleep, whatever we might be doing, when the seed is planted, it has within it the mechanism. God has put within that seed the mechanism to grow all by itself. The soil produces its own crop. That's what the kingdom of God is like. I find that incredible. In other words, and this is what Christian Schwartz says, if we have a healthy church, embedded within the church are all the biotic principles necessary for the church to grow all by itself. If we're doing what God asks us to do, this is not a labor-intensive process. Let me ask you again from the text and from your rudimentary knowledge of agriculture. When you put a seed in the ground and you water it, how much effort do you take to make sure the seed sprouts? How many sorts of things do you have to do to make it sprout? You might have to plant it. You might have to, in California, you certainly have to give it some water. Short of that, you don't have to do anything. And where there's rain, you don't even have to water, right? Embedded within the processes God has created, embedded within creation and the natural order within the biotic principle, this seed will sprout and grow and become something that's productive. 
That's the lesson for the church. I can't tell you how many thousands of hours I've spent listening to church growth people talk about all kinds of things that we might do to grow the church. And I've tried some of them, and some of them have been helpful. Some of them have sort of worked. But the fact of the matter is, is that if we stay connected to the vine, right? Here's another metaphor from agriculture. If we stay connected to the vine, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Okay? If we stay connected, what is going to happen in us? We're going to produce fruits because that's the biotic order of things. That is the principle embedded in nature. That is what we will do. And so we, if, if we've lost track of these sort of uh, ideas and metaphors, it's, it's difficult to appreciate what Jesus might be saying here. As soon as the grain is ripe, verse 29, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. And now we get to the spiritual part of the metaphor. The seed has to at least be scattered on the ground, doesn't it? Planted, if you will. In biblical times, they would have relied on rain primarily or floods, flooding season for the water. Today we have irrigation. But assuming you've scattered the seed or planted it and you've watered, the harvest time will come. And when those grains are ripe, you take your sickle. Well, we don't do that anymore. We have harvesters, right? Big machines, tractors. We can knock down a thousand acres in a day. That's what we have today. But in biblical times, they had a piece of bone or wood that was curved and embedded in it. They put something sharp, like bone or glass or bits of flint. And with that, they would cut the stalks. They were connected to what they were doing. This is why in our reading today, it talked about the foreigner that lived in the country. Did you catch that? It was a harvest season reference. God was very specific with the children of Israel. Guess what? You have been slaves in Egypt. You have been foreigners in another land. Now you must never treat a foreigner badly. Would that the United States would have the same attitude. Oh, I'm not kidding. And I'm not making a, a political statement per se. I'm making a biblical statement. In biblical times, a landowner might have his servants, his family out harvesting grain, but if they took all of it, what was left to regenerate the land? You need the chaff to fall on the land and decompose and go back into the soil. And you need to leave a little grain because there are always those who don't own their land anymore or the stranger that's within your gates. And so they made sure that they didn't harvest everything so that there would be something for someone else to go harvest. When Jesus talked to his disciples he made interesting statements about the harvest. He said, look, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And the disciples were thinking, what is he talking about? And what Jesus was talking about was a harvest of people. We were being likened to grain, you see. Somewhere a seed got planted and the Holy Spirit grew it. The biotic principle took over and there were all sorts of people that Jesus could see who were ready for the goodness and grace that he brought. 
All sorts of people ready to receive the good news about God's favor. All sorts of people anxious to hear the words, your sins are forgiven you. Go and sin no more. The harvest was plentiful. And when Jesus is speaking to his disciples, he's talking to fishermen, he's talking to tax collectors and business people, he's talking to people from all different walks of life. They all understood at some level eventually that what Jesus meant was there's a work to do not just in the field, but there is a metaphor where the field becomes humanity. And the seeds that are sown might be something that you have shared about your faith or your hope or your conviction. And that seed may have sprouted in somebody's life. It might have been a a request for Bible studies you responded to. It might have been something else. And at some point, the harvest is ready. You know, even if people are not ready out there for 28 fundamental beliefs, how many people do you think are ready to hear a word of encouragement or healing? The harvest is ready. How many people are suffering in their bodies and could use good information and encouragement about how to live more healthfully? Their bodies and their minds are ready. The harvest is ready. If we don't recover this, I'm afraid we will lose sight of what it means to seed and harvest. So with that in mind, let's just bump over to Revelation, which was our other reading. Revelation is a lot more colorful in its description and a lot, of course, apocalyptic. So I just think of these uh, new um, sort of animatron-type things in the movies these days when I, when I read some of this stuff. Um, and we have a scene of judgment as well as deliverance. But let's read again. Seated on the cloud was one like a son of man. Who is that? Jesus. Jesus. He's wearing a crown of gold. What does that symbolize? Kingship, right? We're talking not about the suffering servant Jesus, not the one with the crown of thorns on his head. We're talking about the king Jesus, who's coming now in glory and majesty. And he's come and he has something symbolic in his hand because I don't believe for a minute he has a piece of wood with bone or flint or glass embedded in it. I don't even believe it's a fancy gold one. But he has got in his hand in the vision of the, of the prophet a sharp sickle. And what do we think that symbolizes? It symbolizes the harvest time, right? Because when grain is ready... here. You're going to take your sickle and harvest it. When the grapes are ready, you're going to take a sickle-like knife and you're going to cut the bunch of grapes off from the vine like they've been doing for millennia. An angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. There's a spiritual season in which God 
will reap. And so he was seated on the cloud, swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. I don't know what that looks like, really. I just know, again, in the metaphor of apocalyptic literature, something is happening here on a global scale. God is calling forth his own. Well, if you read on in 17 to 20 or so, you find out that there's another reaping, and they're cast into the winepress of God's wrath. And judgment occurs. Even Revelation, even apocalyptic literature is using this fundamental metaphor of harvest, using this idea of gathering in, using this seasonal sort of motif. What kind of lesson do we want to learn? Psalm 85, our call to worship. The psalmist I'll start in nine. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Listen to the poetry here. This is so beautiful. Love and faithfulness meet together. Glorious. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Shalom. And in this beauty, faithfulness springs forth from the earth. And that's a metaphor to what the earth can do biotically. And righteousness looks down from heaven. For the Lord has set things in order as they should be. The Lord will indeed give what is good because all goodness and the fullness of the earth therefore comes from the Lord, which is why at harvest time we don't praise ourselves. We don't praise the earth from which the harvest came. We don't praise the sickle from which we drew the harvest. We don't praise any of that. We don't even praise the seed. We praise the God who gives every good thing. The Lord will indeed give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. Beautiful poetry and imagery talking about the way the goodness of God comes together in a time of harvest. Well, I don't want to ramble on. There are many, many texts that speak of sowing and harvesting. In contemporary metaphors, let's think of it in terms of our retirement accounts, if you have one. If you have saved $20,000 for retirement and it's invested in the stock market and it's invested in a way that mirrors the stock market, if the stock market goes up 1% in a day, how much might you gain? What's 1% of 20000 Is it $200? Your stock market, if it goes up a percent, you could gain $200 in a day for your $20,000. If it goes down 5%, you might lose $1,000 that day, and it might be $1,900 if it mirrors the market. We're used to thinking in those kinds of terms with volatility and yield and timelines. But I want to pull out of that one very basic thing that I want us to keep in mind as a people. In order to get any kind of yield, you have to make a what? 
investment. You have to take a little risk. And so maybe the metaphor for the church today is not planting a seed and putting in our sickle for a harvest. Maybe the metaphor today is you've got to put in the investment if you're going to draw out the interest or if you're going to see a return. And I want us to think about what we're investing. What are we investing in our families, in our friendships, in our communities? What are we investing in the world around us? What are we asking God to bless and turn into a return for His work? Because we can enjoy a life that's disconnected from planting and harvesting and seasons. We can enjoy a life that's technologically mandated and run. We can enjoy a life that's high quality if artificially created on our own time scales. It's even possible to get lucky with a few investments and make mad amounts of money and not even have to work anymore. There are a few people who've done it. But what life teaches us if we think about the natural rhythms of things is that there's a time to plant, a time to wait, a time to harvest, and a time to celebrate the harvest, and a time to do it all over again. What life teaches us is that if we save consistently, we might have a bad year in the stock market. We might have a bad 10 years in the stock market. But if you've been faithfully investing every year for 40 years, 30 years, you'll be able to retire. There will be something there for you. But we don't think of that spiritually. Today I want to leave you with this. If we're going to celebrate harvest, what is going to be the harvest of your life? Who are you going to be praying for? Who are you going to be? What, what seeds do you want to plant? I'm not talking about twisting arms. I'm not talking about chasing people down at grocery stores with tracks that they may or may not want. I'm not talking about you going out and making fools of yourselves. Although we could be fools for the gospel of Christ. I'm talking about what is it that you want the harvest to look like? No seed, no harvest. No water, no harvest. No harvest, no food. No food, no thanksgiving, no celebration. Heaven is going to be a great celebration. What is it that we want to celebrate that day? In all things, his creative potential. May that God bless us as we seek to plant and harvest and as we live our lives before him with joy now and forevermore. Amen.